welcome back to Acamedia. We are a podcast, and let me check my notes. Uh, we represent the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies, which is part of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. Wow, that was good. I wrote it down. I was going to get it right this time. Yeah, we're, that's, you know. That, I teased last time I would come up with a jingle, and I failed. I had, you know, we'll talk in a second about how our brains are not functioning right now. So I failed at that, but I wrote it down, and I got it right. So, boom. Gold star. Yeah, yep. big gold star. Uh, I'm Michael Kackman. I'm you are? Chris- quick, quick. I'm Christine re- Becker. Nice. Christine Becker. Got to check my driver's license. Okay. It's, uh, it's been a while since we've had one of these, uh, I would say face-to-face, <laughs> although our faces are, are uh, mediated by a uh, considerably long path of electrons. But Screen face, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think our last one was in was in August and then the semester started and, you know, I thought, well, we'll do it. You know, we'll do a couple podcasts. We'll kind of track how the semester is going via our podcast. And it's now December 10th. So I think that question has been answered. That's how that went. <laughs> you know, I am especially grateful for uh, the pandemic TV switch in. Yes. You know, that was some quality work there. Uh, and I'm grateful for them. Uh, taking the lead for a bit. Yeah, that helped a lot. That that kept our hashtag content going. And also, they've, they're fantastic conversations. I've been uh, doing the editing on those, so I get to eavesdrop on each conversation. And it just, let me tell you, and especially in a semester where you're struggling, and even struggling with the notion of, of academia and everything we have to do, everything you're supposed to do, everything you're being asked to do, just sitting, listening to five academics be really smart about our great national international nightmare is actually really gratifying and all of those just a little bit behind the scenes information everyone comes in just getting a a set of questions no one's expected to do any research just like maybe think about these things and then come in and talk and just off the cuff they're saying these really smart things It's, it's it's been a blast and we still have a few more episodes left to come we're also hoping to do something at virtual scms we're not sure yet but uh we had originally and I don't know if we mentioned this in the podcast before, but we are, we're going to have a special event at, at Chicago, a live broadcast with a whole studio audience there. And it would have been amazing. And then, you know, it's not the worst thing that happened, <laughs> but that was the thing that didn't happen. So we're going to try to yeah. do something for, for virtual SEMS. We'll see. Keep your ears peeled. Keep, keep them peeled. Be careful with that peeling, though. Uh, but actually, the content we have, hashtag content we have for today is all related in some way to um, the, the conference that didn't happen. So the first segment, an interview with a, uh, is basically a, a workshop or a uh, panel that, that didn't happen. And so we've got an inter- interview with the person who had set that up. And then we've got a couple of more awards segments for you where those who were not able to be um, applauded in Chicago will be applauded over our airwaves. Yeah. And one thing I really appreciated in listening to the material for this uh, episode is that it actually resonates a lot with exactly what you were saying about the Pandemic TV podcast, about just just the pleasure of hearing people think through interesting questions and interacting with one another. And the discussions today are on very, very different topics and, and different folks, and, and uh, some of it's about teaching and some of it's about research, but it's all kind of about the about the um the value and even the joy of asking new questions about old objects and old questions about new objects you know so everybody we're talking to here kind of mixes things up in really interesting ways you know what happens when when you treat post-its as social media and um what happens when you talk to women who are watching tv watching them you know, it's it's just such great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so great to see sharp minds thinking through interesting questions, and that's what we get. That's a great unifying theme of this, and I and I think that's one lesson of the pandemic that, at heart, we're all just left here alone with our own brains. And even if you're lucky enough to have a person to live with, or you know, I had cats to live with who I could talk to. Um, we're, we're sitting here soaking in our own brain matter. And so uh, we've got some fascinating brain matter to present to you yeah. in this episode. This week on Academia, <laughs> Fascinating Brain Matter. There we go. New title. That'll be our new subtitle. I'll write that down and I'll get it right. Good stuff. We're going to start out with one of our producers, Frank Mondelli. He's uh, 
You know, speaking of having people come in and, and do uh, some great work for us, we've got Frank here, and he published a piece with the SCMS Plus Enterprise, which they're going to explain what that is. And so he proposed the idea of digging into that a little bit deeper with one of the uh, organizers of the SCMS Plus Enterprise, and that's Kara Dickinson. And she's, of course, has so much more going on than just that. In fact, that becomes part of uh, one of the issues they come up, you know, come across is, boy, she's got a lot on her plate. And how does she deal with all that? Um, so we're going to hand this over to Frank and his conversation with Kara Dickinson. And then we will, after that, turn to the awards interviews. Excellent. Kara Dickinson is a PhD candidate in screen cultures in the Department of Radio, Television, Film, and a Mellon Cluster Fellow in Gender and Sexuality Studies at Northwestern University. Prior to attending Northwestern, she was an instructor of English and composition at Trinity Washington University, Prince George's Community College, and the Georgetown University of Continuing Studies. She works on girls' and women's media, surveillance and digital technology, television spectatorship, class and racial identity, gender and sexuality studies, and feminist media theory. She also runs the SCMS Graduate Student Organization and is an organizer of SCMS Plus, the new digital space for SCMS members to explore alternative formats of scholarly practice on media and society. Kara, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you, Frank. Great to have you on board. It sounds like you really do quite a bit, and maybe we should start with your work. So could you tell me a little bit more about your research and what you're up to these days? Yeah, so um, I'm on a, a fellowship year at Northwestern right now. So I'm all I'm doing is working on my dissertation. Um, I'm on a, my second chapter draft. So I think I'm still kind of figuring out some of those big questions for my dissertation. But uh, my dissertation largely is on the intersection of surveillance technology and women's television spectatorship. And that intersection is working on two fronts here. So I'm thinking about the way that women's television uh, represents uh, surveillance technology and women's relationship to surveillance and changing dynamics of privacy. And I'm also looking at television technology as it converges with surveillance technology. So thinking about uh, streaming platforms and the way they track what we watch, as well as kind of smart TV surveillance. It might be an actual camera on your TV or the way that it's hooked up to a home security system. Uh, so I'm looking at kind of the, how those two things, the representation of surveillance and television technology as surveillance interact with each other. Wow, that sounds like a really interesting multifaceted project where you have a like you have representation on the one hand and then kind of more socio-technical things on the other hand. That sounds really, really cool. And it's my understanding that you published before on surveillance and television. Is the dissertation kind of building on that or um yeah, what mm -hmm. directions are you going in with that? Yeah, so um, a little bit of what I published before comes out of my master's thesis, which is specifically about teen girl television uh, that, that focuses on surveillance. So I wrote about shows like Gossip Girl and Pretty Little Liar and Veronica Mars. Um, and I just kind of saw this this trend that a lot of these teen shows really do centralize technology uh, and these stories about girls being surveilled. And I think that you really, you know, these are shows that I think people often write off as being a little shallow, um, a little superficial, but I think they actually capture a lot of these really complex dynamics of visibility that, you know, all people are dealing with. And the teenage girls in particular are kind of, you know, the, this relationship to visibility is amplified in our culture. Um, so that's kind of um, the, the starting interest for me. And then it's shifted a little bit. And I think part of this comes out of um, I think Northwestern in particular has this strength in cultural histories of technology, along with kind of textual analysis. So I think that my current project has shifted kind of with those interests as well. So I still look at those those representations um, like I had in my previous publications. And now I'm kind of integrating it with the with this uh, zooming out to look at how television technology is shaping these representations, how these representations are interacting with uh, the changes in technology. So that's kind of what I've been um, writing about a little more recently. Got it. That's super cool. What led you to be interested in these issues of surveillance and representation? 
can, so I've always been interested, um, I think, originally in kind of coming of age stories, constructions of girlhood uh, in media and literature. Um, my master's was in English, so that was something I kind of focused on there. And so, again, I was noticing this trend in teen girl TV, um, and it seemed just that, you know, there's this fascination uh, with um, this this connection between maybe girls, girlhood sexuality, and technology invisibility. And I think that it's been really interesting to see how girlhood sexuality in particular, though I think this is true of women too, still somehow ends up at the center of debates about privacy. So some of the writing I've done is also about uh, girls' nude photos and sexting and the way that we tell stories about girls' photo leaks. Um, and even now, the chapter that I'm working on is about smart TV surveillance in the home. And I'm finding, you know, these commercials that are about uh, using your smart TV to catch your daughter on the front porch about to kiss her boyfriend. Oh, no. Um, or y using parental control technologies to stop young girls from seeing content that is inappropriate for them, you know, maybe rightfully so, but that is in particular inappropriate because it's about a kind of sexual deviance. Uh, so I think that. I, I, I'm really interested in the way that um, girls and women's sexuality becomes the, the center of this debate about privacy. It becomes a justification for surveillance, but also a kind of fear about what surveillance might do. I think that's been one of the kind of big things that keeps me interested. Wow, that is super, super provocative and so rich. I mean, it makes me think of like two things. One is I remember when the previous generation of Xbox came out mm -hmm. and there was this fear that it comes with the camera and the camera is always on no matter what and it's oh, wow. always watching you play. Um, and then the other thing it reminds me of is, I mean, we're going way back, but like the late 1800s, early 1900s in Japan, where there was this worry about schoolgirl autonomy and you know what what they would be up to if you sent them away and the way they dressed and behaved and it was yeah i mean like policing and policing yeah. of like girls bodies like you know has obviously always been a thing but like as we as we you know traverse time and space i think like there are always new and provocative ways to talk about that yeah, absolutely. Right. That that's the thing that can connect, right, this early 20th century in Japan with the new Xbox from 10 years ago is really fascinating. And, uh, you know, I think really troubling in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that um, that I've been looking at recently is also the way that our, you know, kind of interest in or fears about visual surveillance are related to our, um, our uh, either fear about or interest in data surveillance. And so there was fairly recently the uh, an, an FBI blog published an article about how our smart TVs are watching us or how right. um, hackers can access our smart TVs and it might be a window onto our network. And that kind of, one of the worst things that can happen would be that a hacker controls the channel that you're watching, like a hacker can change the channel mm -hmm. um, to show your child something inappropriate or something like that. But the, and then the kind of the worst fear, the worst thing that can happen is like someone looking in through your webcam. Right. Um, but then it kind of hides the fact that, you know, the way that our televisions and our computers function is to track everything we watch. It is to surveil us um, and to make us kind of vulnerable. It invades our privacy. Um, and we have to kind of think about the complicated relationship between those two things and why do we focus so much on the visual? And I think that, you know, the centrality of girl sexuality has a lot to do with this fear of being made visible. Um, and it becomes a way I'm not sure. And this is, you know, a genuine question for me. I don't think I have an answer yet, but I'm not sure how exactly that's related to the way we talk about data surveillance and the ways mm -hmm. that we're tracked, um, not visually. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, oh, I want to keep talking about this. We'll be other things mm -hmm. to talk about. Yeah. But I mean, the other, like immediately, the, it also makes me think of a Zoom bombing. Yes. Yes. Huh. Oh, wow. There's just so much. I can't wait to read it. Can't wait to read oh, the dissertation. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> me, me neither. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, like actually kind of speaking about, you know, sort of like the time in which, yeah. you know, we're living in, like when you're, when you finish, when you're done with the dissertation, like and you put it in front of somebody, mm -hmm. what do you more broadly want them to take away from it? What do you think? 
Yeah, it's such a hard question. And especially, you know, when you're in the midst of it, it's so easy to get caught up in the details. I think it's, you know, it's always good to step back and think about what I actually want people to take away and not just kind of, you know, my advisor or the people who are already experts, but, um, you know, as a, a more general question of like why I think this matters. Um, I think a, lo- a big part of it is that I want us all to be you know, very critical and to think in more complex ways about how these technologies are shaping us. Um, I think a lot of people would consider, you know, viewing recommendations on Netflix to be one of the more innocent forms of algorithmic surveillance. And that might be true, but I think that we do need to approach all of the complexity of that and to think about what it does specifically. How does it position us? How does it shape um, our identities? How does this you know, reshape spectatorship and in doing so kind of reshape subjectivity. Um, And then another part of it is, is always for me kind of about making sure that women's stories and women's television in particular are valued and kind of appreciated for all of the, you know, complex theory that they can teach us. Um, And that we kind of, and in more popular discourse, you know, we have these ideas about the male gaze or maybe more newly a female gaze. And we have these kind of popular ways of thinking about feminism and media. Um, And I think that the kinds of shows that I look at that are about surveillance, that uh, are thinking really complexly about the act of watching and the act of being watched, um, they just, they have these really complex things to tell us about visibility, about objectification and about um, kind of the power dynamics of looking. Mm Mm-hmm. Super cool. I'll be keeping an eye out to read your dissertation when it's out. (laughs) So cool. Yeah. So in addition to all of that provocative, really cool research, you're also quite involved in SCMS as as a whole. And I, you know, sort of like to ask you first about your leadership of the graduate student organization. And like, what did that actually look like for you on like a like a day to day or kind of practical basis? What do you do to, th- to keep things running for the GSL? Yeah, so one of my primary responsibilities is just to kind of represent graduate students on the board of directors. And this has obviously been a very complicated year with the cancellation of the conference, um, rethinking the conference for um, you know an online platform. So a lot of the kind of conversation has been. And for me, thinking about how we can serve graduate students um, throughout all of these kind of big changes. Um, another big part of my responsibility as uh, the GSO representative is to organize a mentorship program. So um, it only started a couple years ago with my prede- predecessor, Amber Hodge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I organized it this past year um, and it almost doubled in size. So there were almost 100 graduate students who signed up. And luckily, uh, you know, just a, a little bit fewer than that um, mentors who signed up. So faculty um, and other professionals, because I wanted to expand also to include ALTAC positions, not only tenure track professors. Yeah. I also, um, you know, one of the big things I did this year was to expand that to include precarious people who are precariously employed, employed, Mm -hmm. precarious workers, um, because I think that, you know, I mean, I consider all graduate students to be (laughs) precariously employed at the moment, um, and we're all definitely facing precarity. So I wanted to make sure that this programming is supporting kind of that part of the SEMS membership. Um, So I pair graduate students or other people who sign up with a mentor who looks at a job document with them. But I think also uh, really often people were just talking about the field more generally, talking about the process of looking for jobs. Um, and uh, and it tended to be people matched based on interests when possible. Uh, I think it gets more complicated the more people there are, and hopefully we'll have even more people interested in um, different kinds of work here as well. So that's something that I'll start doing again um, in the new year before next year's conference. And then the other part is I organize workshops for the conference. And we can talk a little bit about those as well. Um, At at last year's conference that got canceled, I had been hoping to have a kind of a whole members business meeting to talk more about setting goals for the GSO. Um, And we'll have to see if we can put something together for this year's remote conference as well. But I do want to make sure that I think one thing that's kind of complicated about the GSO is in terms of leadership, it's really just me. It's just the GSO rep, and there's not really any kind of 
um, leadership or membership structure. So I think that's something that I've been wanting to build. And I, I have been reaching out to um, graduate representatives from the SIGs and caucuses mm-hmm. who I've been approaching as a kind of executive board for the GSO, because I do think it's important that it isn't just me thinking of things that I think are important to graduate students. I want to make sure there's you know a real body of graduate students who are the leadership for all of us. Um, And the meeting that I had with those representatives was actually the impetus for the anti-racism, equity and diversity task force event that we had a little bit later. Mm -hmm. It was really great to kind of hear from grad students um, about what they care about. And a lot of people were asking to know more about the AED report. They had been talking a lot about their own kind of experiences of racism in the society. It was just really useful for me to hear from them about what their uh, priorities were. So that's one thing I've been trying to do is kind of build out a GSO leadership a little bit more. Right, got it. And how long do you stay in this position as more essentially running the GSO? Yeah, it's two years. Um, So this, I'm at the beginning of my second year. So I'll go until next summer, Mm -hmm. essentially. Got it. And so, yeah, it looks like you're trying to create this board, which would be, you know, really cool. I mean, we're, as you mentioned, we're quite precarious and kind of the more seems to me anyway, the more we organize, um, and kind of put ourselves into bodies like that at at the very least, like the more we can do something about it. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I totally agree. And that's, I think, you know, thinking about how I can support GSO membership at this incredibly hard time, it's, it's hard because these problems are so much bigger than me, certainly, but bigger than SDMS. You know, these are big institutional problems. And it often feels like there's not a lot that SDMS can do at all. There's not a lot that the GSO can do. But I've been trying to collaborate with the Precarious Labor Organization Mm -hmm. and the Women's Caucus, the Caucus on Class, Professional Development Committee, just trying to really get these groups Um, you know, have the GSO collaborating with these groups, because I think we all have similar priorities um, and thinking about how SEMS can better support graduate students when our industry is, you know, in such crisis, really. Um, So I know that, you know, those organizations have been uh, advocating for things like, can SEMS provide library access to people who don't have it through an institution? Yeah. or are there other ways that SEMS can be promoting best practices in hiring in our partner institutions? Um, so I think that I and I think you know all graduate students should be involved in things like the precarious labor organization and the Caucasian class um, because I think that that's you know another avenue for us to really be advocating on a slightly larger scale. Right. And for our listeners, how do we get involved in those caucuses? Um, and a lot of these, uh, signing up on the website and, uh, on, and on Facebook groups joining, I know, especially like the PLO Facebook group, you know, you don't have to be a member of SCMS at this time to start being parts of those conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the SCMS conference, the remote conference in the spring, I know that the PLO is planning to have, um, a big town hall that it had been scheduled for last year that's been rescheduled. And I think that's going to be a really good starting point. The PLO is pretty new. Um, so I think that this is really a place where we're going to be trying to set priorities and and goals for for that organization and for SEMS more broadly. Yeah. In a way, there's never been a better time. Yes. Right. <laughs> I mean, we are all precarious labor. Like, the precarious labor organization should include, you know, most members of SEMS uh, at this point. You know, uh-huh. I think that's just the direction of of the industry. So I think that, you know, more and more it's, we're going to have to shift to that being the the primary membership, I think. Right. Well, cool. That that's, <laughs> I'm going to, yeah, after we're done talking, I'm going to go check those out because I yeah, remember yeah, last please. year we started, um, was it last year that the PLO came up or maybe the year before? I think just the year before, but yeah, yeah it's quite new. Yeah. Well, cool. Thank yeah. you for telling our listeners about that because yes, you know, more and more going forward, we're, this is going to be so necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So, cool. And, you know, actually sort of speaking of, I guess, the precarity, but more broadly, kind of the precarity of our times, you know, during during this pandemic, we've also seen the creation of SCMS Plus. Could you tell us more about what exactly that is and, you know, how you ended up becoming involved in this initiative? 
Yeah, so FCMS Plus is an online platform that we just launched. Um, and honestly, we're still kind of figuring it out, but we're hoping for it to be a platform where members can propose events or um, other kind of creative forms of scholarship um, and conversation for SEMS membership throughout the year. Um, it's meant to, or we're very excited for it to kind of fill this gap for SEMS where we can really have members engaging throughout the year beyond the conference. Um, so we're excited to see where it goes and we hope that members will really be a part of shaping what it ends up looking like. Right. Yeah, you know, it's as far as I'm aware, it kind of got its start in, mm -hmm. around May, at least publicly, mm -hmm. of this year, when you send out a call for papers for short attention span criticism. And I love that title so much. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this turned out to be one of the first activities of SEMS Plus. So, you know, could you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, and this is how I first got involved. So Pam Wojcik, who's a member of the board, mm -hmm. um, invited me to participate specifically in this idea of short attention span criticism. But it came out of this desire to have a space to share immediate responses to the pandemic. We were thinking about forms that wouldn't fit necessarily in a more formal publication. And we got this really awesome mix short video essays, kind of uh, more personal writing, and all these really evocative academic provocations. Uh, and it was really cool just to see all of these people. And I know we had a really big mix of graduate students and precariously employed um, scholars and professor, you know, full professors kind of submitting for this. So it was really exciting to see this diverse set of voices with all of these really interesting directions approaching um, approaching how you know the question of what's happening to media in the pandemic or how is media shaping the pandemic. Right. Um, and that and that was kind of you know we quickly realized that this platform could be more than that. So that was kind of the first yeah. the initial instinct was to just create a space for people to share writing and, you know, kind of scholarly creation that wouldn't fit elsewhere that we hoped would start a larger conversation. Yeah. So it's not just writing. It's not just like, let me, you know, let me submit either a video essay or a piece of writing. It's more, it seems to me to be more about building a kind of community that is flexible and responsive to what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so happy to hear you say that. I think that's exactly what we hope it, it can be. Um, and I know that, you know, we've shifted since then to having more online events and workshops mm -hmm. as opposed to publications. But again, we're hoping that members are really the ones who, who shape the direction and we see what kinds of forms and formats people are interested in creating. Right. I mean, some of those workshops like teaching cinema and media studies online, exploring all DAC university careers, coalitional anti-racism and SCMS. I mean, like all, like all of those are so relevant to what is going on. Yeah. And so I unfortunately wasn't able to attend that very first one. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one, Exploring Altec University Careers, that had originally been uh, the GSO workshop that was meant to be at the conference last year that I just reconfigured ah. for SMS Plus once I had this amazing platform. Mm -hmm. I had put together this you know, really great panel of, um, of people in, in Altec University careers. We had, you know, an, archivi an archivist a programmer at a university museum, someone who works in a humanities center and uh, someone at a teaching and learning center. Um, and they just had uh, the most <laughs> wonderful things to say. Uh, we had a turnout of about 100 people. And the same thing with the um, anti-racism event, too. There were over 100 people there. So we know this is something that people are really craving. I think yeah. that people are, are happy to participate in. The, both of them had really lively conversations. I got really positive feedback from people after the uh, Altac panel. I think that, you know, both of these topics kind of thinking outside of tenure track careers um, and also thinking about anti-racism within SEMS are, you know, things that people are ready to talk about, ready to kind of deal with and confront. Um, and it was, we had really great conversations at both of those. Yeah. And we can't talk about it enough, you know, like. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And I yeah. hope, I mean, in terms of both, but um, I think, you know, we hope that both of those are ongoing conversations that mm -hmm. neither of those was, you know, the end. Right. And that actually brings me to something else I wanted to ask you, which is that 
is SAMS Plus that that going to be like a constant thing going forward? In other words, you know, presumably at some point the pandemic will kind of stop being yeah. a thing, but that doesn't obviously like all the other that doesn't mean that things magically kind of get better and whatnot. And I was wondering, was curious to hear your thoughts about where SAMS Plus is going forward. Yeah, so I, I absolutely hope that it, it it is a constant thing or an ongoing thing for SEMS. Uh, again, it's been a, a goal um, for the organization for a long time to kind of have something to offer members throughout the year. And there has always, you know, the, the organization does offer a lot. Um, but this is a kind of to be able to say here is a workshop or a screening or a creative publication um, ways for members to really be actively engaged and building community, I think specifically throughout the year. And that's maybe one of the great things. I mean, one of the good things coming out of the pandemic is seeing how easy it is and how willing people are to build community remotely. I think that that's, yeah, I don't think we knew that before, like how, how many people might come to an online panel, right? Yeah. And I think that that's, that's still going to be true after the pandemic is now we, we're more familiar. And even then, I probably, you know, I'll be a lot less Zoom fatigued, hopefully, in the future. <laughs> so I'll be even more willing to attend. Um, so I think that I think we really do hope that it can be a part of building community and strengthening the organization throughout the year. Um, and I, I definitely do hope that's an ongoing thing. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, like, so sort of in response to that, how do we stay updated on what SEMS Plus is up to? Do we follow yeah. a Twitter handle or how do we how do we keep keep involved? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we'll be sure that email blasts go out to members mm-hmm. um, about events, but also, yeah, check check the website. Uh, SEMS Plus is under the resources tab. Definitely uh, all of SEMS's social media should have it, as well as kind of, you know, your individual SIGs and caucuses often. Um, but also you can stay up to date by being the one to propose an event. So I love you, that. Yeah. <laughs> if you have an idea, uh, you know, you'll ha- you'll have SEMS behind you to host and advertise. So, you know, you can be the one setting the schedule. Well, yeah, we're, we're very fortunate <laughs> as SEMS members to, you know, have people like you and other people working to make this such an inclusive and, you know, really incredible initiative. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we hope so. <laughs> Yeah. Um, actually, you know, I also wanted to ask because you are involved in so many different things yeah. and you're, you're working on your dissertation and what is your approach to work-life balance? Like, yeah. like how do you, like, do you, do you do your academic work and service to SEMS and the field as a whole and academia as a whole? And like, I, you know, I'm just speaking for myself, but we yeah. all like work work-life balance can certainly be a struggle. So do you have any tips? That'd be great to hear. Well, I think I'm, I'm definitely one of those people who signs up for too much. I am (laughs) in my, uh, so I'm on my fellowship this year, so I'm not teaching. I'm just writing and I'm really working hard, uh, to learn how to, to say no to things (laughs) that I don't, that I don't find valuable or, you know, that, I, I might just be doing for a CV line or something like that. And, and to really focus on the things that I, that I care a lot about. I also work in a writing center right. um, and that's kind of work that that's really meaningful to me. Um, I, I think that I'm someone also who uh, having multiple things on my plate makes me more productive. It energizes me. Whereas, you know, when I'm here just writing my dissertation, I'm like, I can't, yeah, I don't even know how to, how to get myself to, to stare at this or this book any longer. Um, so I, I kind of actually think limiting my time. But I, I think uh, I do really believe in setting boundaries. And I think as graduate students, when we're all on such flexible schedules, you know, that um, that setting a work day for myself is really helpful. I, do, I don't generally work too much on evenings and weekends. I just try to stay busy during the week. Um, and I think that really does does help me a lot. Yeah, well, great. Thank you so much. Kara, thank you so much for joining us here on Academedia. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice to talk to you. All right. Thank you, Frank and Kara. You know, really fascinating research and that cultural history of technology, which I know is one of the things you're really fascinated by. So I, I bet you really grooved on that part of the conversation. 
Yeah, I love, I mean, I think one of the most fun things about teaching history of TV is to just kind of kick the conversation apart a little bit and and drop some of our presumptions about what TV is and instead just kind of get in the room, mm. you know, and, and start to think about like, how are people watching this? Not just sort of in the abstract spectatorial sense, but where are they sitting and what does the remote control feel like? And what is it, what's it what does it mean to be interacting with this digital interface? And, you know, all those those kinds of really tactile kinds of ways of thinking about our interactions with technology. And I love that, that they were able to talk about some of those kinds of issues. I also love the ability to interrogate what new is. That's another thing that comes up in history of TV a lot, where everyone wants, all the students want to come in talking about streaming and how new it is. And it is, of course, in a lot of ways, but especially the way like Netflix is now turning into an old fashioned studio. They're building, you know, studio lots all over the country. And so with this conversation, I love how Frank brought in in his own research, like his knowledge of the history of Japan and notions of surveillance there back in the you know late 19th century. And so, you know, what's new, what's different, and then learning from what's new and what's different and, and understanding in a more nuanced way everything that's happening because you have that long scope of history. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's Carolyn Marvin said, new is a historically contingent term, um, you know, in talking about media technologies. Put yeah. that on a pillow, put that on a, what do you call those things? Like A doily? Doily. I was thinking of like, uh, I'm sorry, again, brain is not functioning. Oh, like a like needlepoint, needlepoint. Uh, sampler. Sampler. Put that on a sampler. <laughs> there yeah. we go. There's a, we, we've just given you a Christmas present idea, Acamedia listeners. Yeah. <laughs> your, your mom will love it. <laughs> All right. All right. For our next conversation, we actually have a similar kind of interesting approach to a, a media technology that, that we don't even think of as technological, uh, almost, because it is so quotidian. Yeah. And so what we have here, we've got a pair of interviews that uh, another Acamedia producer helped us out with. Those, So this is Stephanie Brown, who conducted these interviews. And these are two of the award winners from SCMS this year. So we've got the student student writing award winner first, and then the distinguished pedagogy award. And so as I mentioned, Stephanie Brown conducted these interviews. Uh, she let the interviewees basically introduce themselves by delivering their own bio. So we don't have to say too much beforehand. Um, and then she jumps in with some comments along the way. But we do have the citation for the first um, award winner. So I want to go ahead and read that. And so this is the Student Writing Award. And this went to Jin Suk Kim, uh, who at the time was at the University of Texas at Austin and has since moved on. And she'll explain where at the start of her piece. And this is from uh, Kim Hester Williams, who is the chair of the award for the um, student writing. So the article is titled Sticky Feminist Activism, the Gangnam Station Murder Case and Sticky Note Activism Against Misogyny and Femicide. And the citation says this is first and foremost a crucial topic. The author's meticulous treatment of our subject matter is not only compelling, it is enthralling and impactful. Jin Suk Kim attends decisively to gender violence and feminist response in both the specific context and geography of her study, that is locally, while at the same time also highlighting the larger global context and significance of violence applicable to women's lived and shared experiences. Furthermore, she does so in a way that is palpable for the reader. Additionally, Kim is skillful in offering a glimpse into the world of sticky feminist social media activism while also framing herself as a participant. These ideas, as well as the approach to the topic, are exemplary in this regard. It is unanimously clear to the members of the SCMS Student Award Committee that this paper is rich and rigorous and that the author has produced a very meaningful and original contribution. Moreover, we felt sincerely interested throughout the essay and persuaded by the author's provocative claims. And this will be in a issue of Cinema Journal, or, ah, sorry, Journal of Cinema Media Studies. Damn it. I should have written it down for here, too. Oh, it will be available in a future issue of the Journal. It's <laughs> just a journal. <laughs> oh, my God. It's a really good journal. <laughs> in fact, it's my favorite journal. Geranimals. Um, uh, it'll be available in a future issue. Of the journal thing. <laughs> word place. I think we call it word place. <laughs> okay, let's let Jin Suk Kim take it away. Take us away. <laughs> okay. <I'll go> <laughs> Our 
first of all, uh, thank you for inviting me. And I'm currently a lecturer in the Department of Radio, Television, Film at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, where I earned my PhD in Media Studies. And this fall, I will start my new position of uh, postdoctoral fellow in the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. So, uh, this is a great opportunity. So um, through this podcast, I would like to thank my supervisor, Dr. Madhvi Malapuragada, and the members of my dissertation committee, um, Drs. Mary Bertrand, Shanti Kumar, and Yu Jung Woo at UT Austin. Uh, for reading an earlier version of this piece and for their insightful comments. So my in terms of my research, my research focuses on digital media, transnational online hate culture, and gender and racial politics, and social and political activism uh, in the context of contemporary South Korea. So it's a part of my dissertation uh, project titled Contesting Hate, Online Misogyny and Network to Feminist Anti-Hate Activism in South Korea. And this is the second chapter of my um, dissertation. And this paper um, explores the convergence of online and offline sticky note activism surrounding the 2016 Gangnam um, Station murder case in South Korea. To give you some context, in this incident, a man stabbed to death a woman in her 20s whom he had never met before, allegedly because he felt that uh, he had been ignored by women. So um, security camera footage showed that he actually waited for a female target for more than an hour, ignoring like six men who entered the public restroom. So, uh, however, like police and mainstream media framed this incident as motivless random killing rather than a misogynistic hate crime. So in responding to the killing, a lot of people like left uh, thousands of posted notes at the memorial site. Um, so both online and offline, many uh, participants, especially women, began to speak out to redefine this murder as a misogynistic hate crime rather than a random killing. And there is no specific law against hate crimes in South Korea as of now. Uh, this murder case sparked a huge social debate about the issue, especially about uh, femicide. So because the murder occurred uh, during my finish, initial fieldwork in Korea in 2016, I was able to uh, visit the memorial site, and I saw that many of the participants and then women were crying as they wrote down their messages on sticky notes and read uh, others' notes. So I realized how effective motives such as empathy, fear, and anger were really important for them in going to the memorial site and participating the activism. So um, foregrounding the sticky note activism as an important alternative feminist media practice I discuss how feminist activists chose and combined so-called old and new media for their activism. And I also argue that um, sticky note activism has played a crucial role in forming what scholars have called affective counterpublics by politicizing women's affect and by challenging dominant narratives about the killing of women and by contributing to the formation of feminist public. So I'm not actually that familiar with sticky note activism. Is that literally just writing notes on sticky notes and putting them on, like putting them at the memorial site? Um, yes. First, uh, yeah. on the one hand, they uh, put the sticky notes at the memorial site. And on the other hand, they, uh, take, they took the uh, pictures of sticky notes and uploaded to um, social media. So, so it's uh, basically, yeah, yeah, both online and offline. So it is a really interesting way of combining very old media like very yeah. basic right yeah um and it says in the the like feedback you got that you framed yourself as a participant so did you participate in the sticky note activism at the time as well oh uh, yes yes as i mentioned the murder occurred uh during my field work so um i visited the site and i also met participants uh, in the activism so there i recruited some of the uh, initial participants like interviewees mm -hmm. for my study 
Oh, wow. And there were also like, um, yeah, like on street, like protests and some of the participants organized uh, like small workshops. So, yeah, I also uh, went there, too. I mean, I was like many others. I was really looking forward to meeting many mentors and scholars in person at the conference. I think that SMS conferences have been always a good place to uh, meet uh, amazing like scholars in the field and learn from other scholars. Yeah, so I think I really miss about the opportunities. And also, I was going to present a new project. Uh, my new project uh, on the convergence of popular feminism and anti-refuse Bangladesh in South Korea in the panel. So I also missed the opportunity to get some like valuable feedback uh, from other panelists and audiences. So I miss, uh, yeah, it. Since you're teaching this semester, how how was your switch to online uh, teaching? Yeah, so like other campuses, UT also shut down before spring break. So I had to shift them to online format, but I'm like doing asynchronous teaching. So I don't have like real time interaction uh, with my students, but I um, allow them to uh, listen my lectures and post uh, their thoughts uh, at their ta- their own time. So, I, But uh, on a brighter side, I think it's good uh, to see that some students, you know, who are staying quiet or reluctant to speak in class, like post like thoughtful like engaging responses uh, through online discussions and um, I have a three-year-old kid so I'm trying to working from home while taking uh, care of her so it's uh, it's definitely very challenging but like I'm trying to have uh, realistic expectations and to be kind to myself <laughs> that's most important <laughs> Again, very fascinating research there. And also, especially right here at the end of the semester, that was actually recorded in in the spring when we had that second half of the semester go online. But now we've had a full semester of going online. So her thoughts on the end at the end there of getting students uh, feeling intellectually invested and, you know, into a class online probably resonated for a lot of our listeners, I'd assume. Yes, absolutely. Which I had a, a challenging experience because I taught our big intro class, which is 100 students and uh, the lecture part of it. And I didn't want to have to teach that in, you know, like an airport hangar. So I asked to teach that part online and I did it with asynchronous pre-recorded lectures, which went fine. It was fun. We had this little space down in the basement of our, our building that was set up kind of like a studio for me, which Michael helped out with. Thank you for that, Michael. And it was great. It had like a switcher so I could switch between my webcam and the clips and the clips looked great rather than like junk is the way they usually do over Zoom. So it was, it was really great. But I had almost zero contact with the students then. And the only feedback I got from them was they'd email me because like our learning management system wasn't working or they had a grade complaint and that so it's like the worst bits of teaching that I got and none of the fun stuff and especially this is a class that's mostly freshmen and teaching freshmen is like having puppies in the room they're just so excited and so fascinated by every single thing you tell them and it's real fuel for teaching and I didn't get that fuel and it was kind of a grind as a result um but my, my the feedback from the students was was good i got and interestingly enough the highest uh teaching evaluations i've ever gotten for that class which maybe they build in a cushion because everyone realizes everything sucks right now and so if you do okay everyone's like that was amazing yeah. but I, I felt like okay i i you know i did my best and maybe it was my best i guess it is so hard to not have that immediate feedback mechanism of you know bodies in the room and and people that you're interacting with emotionally and intellectually. And that's really hard. It, it, you know, it really makes me an awful lot more appreciative of Max Headroom, you know, (laughs) thinking about um, how incredibly dynamic and interactive and responsive Max was. Yes. Um, You know, I think that's actually a really high bar to try to match that level of enthusiasm and, and energy. And for, for you youngins out there who aren't familiar, we'll, we'll put some clips on our website, Aka akhyphenmedia.org um, to so you can oh, use that for for inspiration. That was good. Thank, well, see, see I, I, our last episode, I did that, yeah. and that's that had been my pledge to do that with the opening, but I forgot. Um, but anyway, so we, for your spring teaching, if you're looking for a model, Michael Kackman recommends Max Hedrum.
Yeah. I, I was teaching an 80s class this last semester, so Max appeared. Um, there are really some great clips. I mean, there's his Coke commercials and <laughs> the Art of Noise video. Those are pretty great. He was on the David Letterman show a few times. Um, I think my favorite is a conversation between Max Headroom and David Byrne, where they're both kind of interviewing each other. Oh, wow. That's, a, pretty good that's stuff. a meeting of the minds. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. So we'll we'll link to that. All right, excellent. And speaking of teaching, this is like the most natural segue ever because we have the uh, our, our final awards interviewee for this episode is the uh, winner of the Distinguished Pedagogy Award from SCMS. And this belongs to Allison Whitney, who is at Texas Tech University. And so uh, like with the previous interview, Allison Whitney will introduce herself here and then talk about her teaching. There's some really interesting uh, perspectives on teaching in this conversation. And again, our interlocutor here is Steph. So thanks. I'm Allison Whitney. I'm an associate professor of film and media studies in the Department of English at Texas Tech. And I've been here for 11 years. My research interests are in technological history, reception studies, and film genres. And of course, I'm very interested in pedagogy. So there's a few truisms about good teaching that get repeated to the point of cliche sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I learn as much from my students as they do from me. Um, Or pedagogy has to be student-centered. And very often, you know, people will repeat those things and you don't have much of a sense of what that really means. But you know, it, with my experience at Texas Tech, when, when I moved here, I had been living and working in places like Toronto, Montreal, Chicago, Atlanta, places that had highly developed and, and also institutionalized film culture, right? Okay. So lots of museums with film series and film festivals and repertory cinemas and that kind of thing. When I arrived in in Lubbock 11 years ago, I came into a very different kind of landscape. An example I often use to explain what it's like to be in Lubbock is at one point I was at a a stoplight and a tumbleweed crossed the street in front of me um, in the crosswalk, which is, yeah, absolutely. I thought, oh, wow, this is where I am. So, no, I mean, there was film culture in Lubbock, but there was a film festival that happened one weekend a year right? Um, that kind of thing. So I really had to, to rethink how to make use of my environment in a way that could get my students excited about film history and film culture and film criticism. Um, you know, I couldn't rely on there being a big cinema tech, right? Where they can mm-hmm. go yeah. and, and sort of satisfy that curiosity. So what I started to do is really ask them about their experiences of the cinema, you know, what did their own film culture look like? What did it mean for them to go to the movies? That kind of thing. Uh, and the, the feedback I got from them was really fascinating. And in a lot of cases, it offered narratives about media that I hadn't encountered in other yeah, histories yeah. of film or kind of frameworks that we use to understand how people use and, and understand media. This is where the whole learning from your students and being student-centered I decided to do things like, I think it was the first or second summer of my position here, I did the Oral History Summer Institute at Berkeley to learn about that type of research method. And since then, I've been incorporating that in a lot of my teaching and figuring out ways to both record and make use of the local film history. And I mean, that has been fascinating from a research perspective. And it's also something that gives the students this very tangible connection between taking a film studies class and their lives and their relationships and their experiences. Yeah. And another thing is that, you know, I've had the benefit of being at an institution that values good teaching. There's been a lot of institutional support here. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who would love to put a lot of attention into their teaching, but if your institution doesn't value that, it's hard to, to justify that on a kind of survival level, right? I've been very fortunate to be in a, a school and a, and a department that really places a lot of emphasis on teaching and values it when it comes to things like tenure and promotion. Yeah. If there were like admin listening to this, what, what, <laughs> what, is, what is 
like institutional support look like in practice? We have, there's a, a, a center for teaching and learning mm-hmm. uh, on the campus that is well-staffed, that has the, the agency to be in constant dialogue with the faculty in terms of giving them the kind of workshops they need, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, there's also a lot of teaching awards and things mm-hmm. like that on the campus. One of the awards I received was an Integrated Scholarship Award, which encourages faculty to, well, to integrate their research, their teaching, and their service activities. That kind of thing, you know, it draws attention to what you're doing. Yeah. It ends up being valued on the practical levels of how much merit pay you get and you know, things yeah. like that. And of course, they offer, you know, they, they also value you know, traditional research as well. But putting structures in place, putting in systems of recognition mm-hmm. for teaching in itself, but also for trying to be creative about teaching and, you know, connecting it to the other parts of your scholarship. Yeah, oh, that's great. Um, another thing is in my department, graduate students can take two whole seminars on teaching. Uh, that would have been great. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So uh, I'm in an, an English department and it's a... A huge department with with a lot of different components to it, and film studies is part of that. Um, so there's a teaching college literature class, and then a few years ago, I developed this seminar on teaching film and media. What's been great about that is obviously it gives students this kind of you know tangible instruction, and and sometimes you'll get students there who aren't necessarily focusing on film studies, but they want to be able to use media in mindful ways yeah. in their teaching. What's been great for me is basically every class meeting has this like meta level of commentary going on, right? Because we're, I'm trying to teach them something yeah, and, they're about and they're trying yeah. to learn something. Right. And then we can say, okay, and how did I approach that uh-huh. <laughs> just now? <laughs> um, and another thing that's been lovely is that students who've taken that class will then come back to me, you know, a few semesters later and say, here's what I figured out. Or here's what's going on in this other seminar, and it made me think about this. And so it's it's allowed me to develop this sort of ongoing conversation with my students about teaching, uh-huh. um, which is valuable to me, right? Because they they see things from a different perspective. Yeah, that's um, great. You know, as a, a TA in a class, or as someone teaching their first class of their own design, or things like that. Yeah, oh, that's so that's so cool. Well, you know, I was going to audit one of those workshops on practical and ethical considerations when it comes to teaching war and cinema. Uh-huh. And I mean, I was keen to participate in that because, well, A, I've, I've taught a class on nonfiction media and war and military culture. And actually, my, my interest in oral history has been a big part of that. I've had students interview military veterans about their experiences of media culture in the military. And it's, it's produced some really fascinating results. And here's a particularly remarkable story. I had a, a student take that class, and she was an, uh, an English major, but she was also interested in uh, speech therapy as a career path. Also, her husband was an uh, Afghanistan veteran. She took the class and did an oral history interview for the class and then decided to do an independent study with me where she would interview more veterans. Anyway, so it was a fascinating process and she learned a lot. And then a few years later, she got back to me and she said, you know, taking that class really changed the way I think about storytelling and particularly for people you know, in that community. And so she was you know, asking for a reference to do a, a master's program in speech therapy. And her plan was to, to do research on storytelling as a, as a means of uh, treating traumatic brain injury and PTSD, you know, in relationship to, to speech problems. And so, I mean, that was one of those sort of astonishing moments, right? Where yeah, that's uh, great. Truly interdisciplinary. <laughs> Absolutely. And there was this outcome that you couldn't anticipate. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, when I'm teaching graduate students in my teaching film and media class, one of the things I'll always remind them is that, I mean, of course, you're, you're focused on the, the class as it is in terms of what you're offering and the kind of outcomes you want to have. But be mindful that sometimes the most exciting outcomes will happen years later. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's great when you hear about that, but 
also sometimes you're not going to know about that but just you know rest assured that you're yeah. you're doing good stuff <laughs> A bunch of stuff in that resonated for me. One thing, that idea of letting students raise their own experiences in the classroom and then kind of forming what you're saying around that. And I think Michael would probably agree with this as because we both teach more television than film. That's a huge part of teaching TV today because mm-hmm. I only can see like one eight hundredth of the content out there. And students are also watching YouTube and consuming TikToks and twitch and things like that and so i have to say to them what are you all watching what are you experiencing because i can't teach them that stuff they have to essentially teach me that stuff so that's a really refreshing thing to hear about such an accomplished uh, teacher as allison whitney that that's kind of always been at the heart of, of how she teaches yeah yeah that's really really terrific um and i love the way that she talks about the the kind of the long tail you know the um hearing from students sometimes years later who have drawn unexpected value from from classes and and you know where where an idea starts in one place and it and it kind of migrates into something else and then that was really wonderful to hear her thinking about and reflecting about yeah that's always a a really profound experience and especially at the end of a semester when you've had a real brutal grind to hear from a student where you think like okay maybe i did reach and so again me like lecturing to the void i just have to trust that someone out there you know, got something from it. And someday we'll be able to use something of that, um, which also reminds me of, of the semester. We've heard from a lot of our former students and alums, not only because of reasons we would have wanted to, we've had, you know, Notre Dame has been in the news more than we'd like for, for reasons that aren't always the best, but it's been heartening hearing from alums saying, we're thinking of you, we're, we're thinking of the best for you and, and the students. And so that's been a real great experience, especially kind of, you know, feeling about what we do and, and, the ways in which we represent the institution as well has been a real uh, interesting semester. Interesting indeed. Um, I could deal with uh, perhaps a little bit less interesting. That would be okay. More boring could be could be good. Yeah, fewer yeah. fewer New York Times pieces on Notre Dame. I think could could be you know usually you're happy when you make the New York Times. This time I would like no like oh, fewer oh oh not just, again just a few yeah. few fewer mentions. So yeah, fewer mentions would be good. You know, I, you and I both do a lot of advising and have worked with students and, you know, sometimes who are very committed majors and sometimes they're just dabbling and, you know, on all over the place. And I feel like I have hundreds of times had that conversation with students or sometimes with parents, like if it's a incoming student uh, kind of interview or um, advising session where they bring their families or, you know, that kind of thing. And talked about how you never can really predict what the value of of any particular class will be. Um, and that part of the uh, core philosophy of a liberal arts education is that you're building this broad toolkit that can be used for lots of different things and and that can enrich your life in um, ways that you you can't predict in a really strictly instrumental kind of way. And so I think I'm used to having that conversation looking forward. And one of the things that was great about what Allison had to say about uh, interacting with our students is thinking about it retrospectively too, you know, like looking back and hearing from students, you know, downstream, thinking about what, what they took out of a class and, and how it uh, impacted them. And that's the part we never get, right? You know, we like, we, we sell the idea of uh, a kind of broadly uh, diversified liberal arts education but we don't always get the feedback about how people put it into practice. And so that, I really appreciated that. It was a, it's like a nice little gift. Yeah. And so thank you, Allison Whitney. Thank you, Steph Brown. Thank you, SCMS. And uh, we look forward to celebrating everyone all over again, albeit virtually. Uh, in in the internet <laughs> at the at next SMS. We do have a few more awards uh, interviews coming up. So um, you'll get to hear from more really interesting people with great brain matter going forward in yeah. future episodes. Yes. And also thanks to Jin Suk Kim and congratulations about the writing award. And also to uh, Kara Dickinson and Frank Mandeli for, for their conversation too. Yeah. And uh, I love reflecting on how much everything kind of fused together in this episode as you, you prefaced at the start of this. It was a really enjoyable episode to listen to. I was kind of aiming for like a, a radio lab sort of, you know, big think, this is the episode about blah, blah. <laughs> 
We don't have the big think right now, no, though. No. I don't think any of I'm us terrible at that kind of stuff. Well, in general, and also just like right now, the the brain, you know, it takes time to, for the brain Jenner to, brain Jenner to rematterate. That's <laughs> exactly. literally what my brain said for my brain matter to regenerate. That's what it was supposed to be. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh man. I was shopping for Christmas presents for family and I bought this new game for my nieces and nephews. It's like a, I don't even remember what the game is called. It's like, it's, it's like a um, sort of like a Pictionary game, but with words and you can only use one syllable words to try to get somebody to guess something. Oh, wow. So it, it's like Neanderthal Pictionary or something <laughs> or, or charades or something. Um but the but the catch is that you can only use one syllable words to try to get somebody to an idea or a concept, hmm. which honestly is about as twenty twenty as you can <laughs> get. Right. Like. Yeah. Well, that's a good thought to to end on because we are essentially ending twenty twenty. I can guarantee we won't have another episode out <laughs> before the end of this year. Oh, we got yeah. this one. So, uh, so yeah. Goodbye twenty twenty. F off twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> but we wish everyone a good 2021 and we will be back in 2021 sooner rather than later we will fingers crossed we will uh we could not produce this podcast without uh considerable amounts of help uh including obviously steph brown and frank mondelli who uh did a lot of heavy lifting on this episode but also bill kirkpatrick uh from denison university Todd Thompson of the Golden Ears down at UT Austin. And also Joel Neville Anderson, who is now a visiting assistant professor of cinema studies and film at Purchase College, State University of New York. We are also grateful uh, to... Uh, who? <laughs> Let's see. Well, there's SCMS. <laughs> yeah, there's SCMS. Um, College of Arts and Letters at Notre Dame. Yeah. Department of Communication. Communications at Denison University. I think it's communication. Yeah. Um, Communications are, th are things, press releases. Okay. Communication is the process. There we go. Okay. That's, that's a good shorthand to remember that now, from now on. Yeah. We've all learned something today. We all have. But we are very grateful for all of their support. We literally couldn't do it without them. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy 2021. Happy Hanukkah. We'll see what happens with the vaccine. Happy vaccine. Happy vaccine. All right. <laughs> I think that's a wrap. <laughs> it sort of it felt sort of like the semester. We got through it. We did our best. <laughs> All right.